Good morning. If you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the book of 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be continuing our study in the book of 1 John today. Uh, But Ephesians chapter 1 is certainly one of the passages that we will be referencing uh, as we go through this. The Beatles, probably a band that you guys have all heard of. Um, Yeah, they're pretty big. Pretty big. Uh, They were once asked to write a song that could be appreciated and understood and celebrated by people from, uh, from nations around the world, something that would be relevant to absolutely everybody, no matter where they were. And their response was to come up with a song that would be watched via live broadcast by more than 400 million people in 26 countries around the world uh, who tuned in via satellite on June 25th, 1967. And the name of the song that they performed, anybody know what it is? The name of the song that they performed before this worldwide audience was All You Need Is Love. All You Need Is Love. And while I don't disagree with the sentiment that they were trying to express or communicate with that song, which was definitely one of the classics. Everybody heard that song? If, if you're over 30 or so, you probably heard that song. Uh, it went down as a classic for sure, but, but I would argue that they were, they were close to the truth, but they, they weren't quite there. And the reason that they were close but not quite there boils down to the world's definition of love, uh, which, as we have seen over the course of the past few weeks, is not love. Um, one of the great things that we've learned as we've been going through the book of First John is that God is love. God is love. It's part of his essence. It's part of his nature, his fabric. It's part of what it means for God to be God. And this attribute of God, uh, love, is perfectly compatible with his holiness, His love is compatible with his holiness, but it's not compatible with things like sin, with things like unrighteousness, with things like selfishness. So God is love. That's one of the things that John has taught us in our study of the book of 1 John. So let's apply some, just some fundamental basic logic to uh, to this classic Beatles song. If all you need is, is love, if all you need is love and God is love, then wouldn't it be completely true to say that all you need is God? To be more theologically precise, all you need is Jesus. All you need is Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, and who was the perfect demonstration, the ultimate revelation of God's perfect love. If love is all we need, And by the the Bible's definition of love, I would agree with that. Why would we settle for anything less than God's perfect love? Now, as we continue in our study of 1 John today, we should remember that John, uh, he's remembered as being the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John, that's the only way that John refers to himself throughout the gospel according to John. Over and over again, we read the disciple that Jesus loved, the disciple that Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Over and over, that's, that's how central the love of God, of Christ, was to John's very identity. 
the way that he saw himself was as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we should remember that this epistle and this study are about finding true blessed assurance of our standing before God. I would remind us that John sums up this entire book in chapter 5, verse 13, which we'll get to in two or maybe three weeks, where he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. Why is assurance so important? I'll say this, I don't know that it's possible to have a growing, healthy, thriving walk with the Lord if a person doesn't have a sense of assurance of where they stand with God. Just like a marriage. Can you imagine being married to somebody and you think, well, I think this person loves me, but I'm not really sure. Uh, How healthy can that marriage possibly be? I would argue it couldn't be really, really healthy. It couldn't be thriving if there's uncertainty, if there's a lack of assurance. So assurance is very, very important to our walk with Jesus. John knew what this blessed assurance was, what it was all about, what it was like to walk in blessed assurance. He knew that he was loved by God, and he saw it as the foundation of his entire identity. Assurance is important because our behavior is determined to some extent by what we perceive our identity to be rooted in. Let me say that again. Our behavior is determined to some extent or another by what we perceive our identity to be rooted in. If I perceive myself to be hated by God, I'm probably going to act like somebody who doesn't feel like he's loved by God, and there's going to be a significant difference between the two. What we believe about ourselves will, to some extent or another, play a role in how we behave. So I guess we can start out today's lesson by by just asking this question. What do you think about yourself? What is your identity rooted in, centered in? What's the foundation of it? If you are in Christ, the Bible has some amazing, beautiful, wonderful things to say about who you are, how God has blessed you, how God has loved you. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says that through Christ, the Christian is at peace with God. Romans chapter 6 verses 11 tells us that through Christ, the Christian is dead to sin, dead to sin spiritually alive in Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says that through Christ the Christian is forgiven by God and that there is no condemnation toward him. Romans chapter 8 verse 16 says that through Christ the Christian is a child of God. The next verse, 8.17, tells us that through Christ the Christian is an heir of God. Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says that through Christ the Christian is both purified and possessed through Christ. We are secure in him. John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus tells us the same thing. Nobody will snatch the Christian out of my hand. Nobody snatches my sheep out of my hand. If you are in Christ, these amazing truths are written about you. They're about you. This is about your standing before God. These things are amazing when you ponder them. And I, I don't know about you, but when I consider who I am in Christ, I am almost in utter shock, almost 
disbelief. This, this identity that I have in Christ is the most miraculous and most undeserved gift imaginable. And when I think about all that I am, all that Scripture tells me that I am, not because I'm good enough or, or because I deserve it or because I would have even chosen it for myself, but because God gave it to me, I know that I am deeply, deeply loved by God. So I ask you, do, do you feel loved by God when you consider these truths from his word about you? As we reflect on his wonderful love for us, we must remember what John said in chapter 4, verse 11 of our study. We covered it last week. If God loved us this way, we must also love one another. And so our passage today starts with a very simple statement. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. It's a very, very simple, straightforward statement. And yet, it's unbelievably profound. We should start by looking at the word this. It says, by this we know. By what we know. What does this refer to? To answer that question, all we do is we reflect on the previous statement that John made. In the previous two verses, he wrote, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. That's from chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. In other words, when we love one another as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ... We put the nature of God out on full display because we reveal the divine nature that Peter tells us through Christ we're able to partake of. While Christ was the full revelation of God's character in the flesh, he now abides in us. And when he abides in us, we will reflect his character. John and the disciples got to see the nature of God is revealed in Christ with their own eyes. But what about the modern world? What do our neighbors get to see? What does the world get to see since they don't see Christ in the flesh the way that the disciples did? They get to see us. They get to see us. And that's a very weighty and a very important responsibility that we have as his people. But that is the power, that is the strength, that is the testimony of Christian love, and that's why it's so incredibly important that we are obedient to the command of Christ that we love one another. Because when we do, we show the world a part of God that they otherwise would not know, that God is love. And when we love selflessly, when we see and understand the love of God more fully, when we see it amongst our brothers and sisters, when we see it growing in ourselves, we understand the love of God more fully. And when we see and understand the love of God more fully, we love him more and we love his people more. His love is perfected. It's perfected in us. That is, it becomes mature. It becomes strengthened, more steadfast in us. And when we see that happening, 
we can know. We can have assurance that we abide in him and he abides in us. And if you'll remember, when Jesus was having a conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus likened the work of the Holy Spirit to the wind. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. You know, we can't see the wind, but what we can see is the effects of the wind. Likewise, we can't open up somebody, you know, and look in their heart and, and, and know, uh, based on empirical evidence, what we see in their physical heart, that they've been born again, born of God, regenerated. But we can verify the reality of their faith when we see the work of the Holy Spirit pouring out of their lives. By this we know, by this we have assurance that we abide in him and that he abides in us. And how do we know? Because we love as we have been loved by God. And those words, by this we know. Man, that should, that should be, be starting to sound really familiar um, at this point. As we look back through the book, we've seen these words over and over and over again. We will, uh, you know, in the chapter to follow. Uh, we find this, as we should expect, considering that the book is about finding true blessed assurance. Chapter 2, verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Chapter 2, verse 6, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Chapter 3, verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Verse 19, chapter 3, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Verse 24, by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Verse 2 of this chapter, chapter 4, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And then verse 6, by this we know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. Over and over and over again we find these words. Why? Pretty obviously, I think, because John wants us to know something. He wants us to know, and he wants us to know how to know. He wants us to be able to discern what is true from what is false. He wants us to know, in our passage at hand today, that the Holy Spirit's presence is made evident in us when we see our love for God and for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ being perfected. Maturing, strengthening, becoming more devoted, more full, more committed. John continues, verses 14 to 16. He says, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God as God abides in him. We should start off by clarifying who is we when he says, and we have seen and testify. 
He's talking about himself. He's talking about the disciples, those who were eyewitnesses of the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus. John and the disciples were blessed beyond words to have this opportunity to see and therefore give eyewitness testimony to what they had seen with their very eyes, that the Father had sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That word world, we would be very, very wise to be very, very careful with the word world. There is a false belief in our culture, in our world, that has grown in acceptance, especially in this generation, which promotes the idea that when all is said and done, nobody is going to hell. Everyone is eventually going to be saved. This is called universalism. It's a heresy. This is one of the proof texts that adherents of this belief, universalism, will refer to. They'll say, well, look, it says it right here. It says that Jesus is the Savior of the world. So how can you believe that he doesn't save anybody? But we have to ask ourselves, what does the word world specifically refer to here? Is John saying that everyone is going to be saved? Absolutely not. Number one, it, it doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture. Number two, if that were the case, if he really believed that you know everybody's just going to be saved no matter what, he wouldn't have needed to have written his gospel testimony, which he specifically says he wrote, in order that his readers may believe and have eternal life in Christ. So they could be saved. They could believe and be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the word world doesn't always refer to absolutely everybody. It doesn't refer to everyone. In fact, there are at least 10 different meanings of the Greek word cosmos, which we get world, 10 different meanings of this word. And the only way to know which usage is appropriate is two things. Number one, examine the context very closely. And number two, always let Scripture interpret Scripture. If it doesn't line up with something that's clearly taught elsewhere, figure out a way to reconcile it. So number one, look at the context. Number two, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Sometimes the word world refers to a governmental system. Sometimes it refers to the heavens and the the, the stars in the sky. Sometimes it refers to the physical earth, the physical universe. Sometimes it refers to all of humanity in general. Sometimes it refers only to fallen men who persist in unbelief and are hostile toward and alienated from God. And sometimes it refers only to God's people. You think this word requires some diligence, some study, some examination on our part. Yes, it does. I would say that the meaning that makes the most sense in this context is God's people. That's what John is referring to. It's the same, uh, same word, same meaning that John says when, uh, or John the Baptist uh, meant when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Did Jesus take away the sin of everyone? No, he didn't. Uh, the universalists would say yes, but again, that's, that's a heretical position. So no, he only took away the sin of those who would believe in him those who would have saving faith in him, who would be his people through faith in him alone. 
So John says that believing the testimony of himself and, and the other disciples slash apostles, joining them in their confession that Jesus is the Son of God, is a strong, strong piece of evidence for the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit within a person. We can't forget that we can't convince a person to come to Christ any more than we can go and raise a dead person back to life. Convincing and converting are the roles of the Holy Spirit, but it is never the ultimate role of the believer. It can't be done. We don't have the power to bring a dead heart back to life or to life. Our job is to plant seeds. Our job is to maintain a healthy, thriving, growing walk with the Lord ourselves so as to maintain a good testimony, but we cannot convince someone to turn to God because humanity is incapable of coming to him on their own. Jesus said, no one may come to me unless... There's a condition. No one may come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's John 6, 44. See, it's very easy for us to miss the radical resistance that humanity has in coming to faith in Christ. It is a radical resistance. We are not born neutral toward God. It's something that only God can do. Only God can change the heart. Only God can bring what's dead back to life. Ephesians 2.8 reveals that even saving faith is a gift, that it's not of ourselves. In fact, faith is part of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness is how it gets translated, gentleness and self-control. Interestingly enough, however, the Greek word that gets translated as faithfulness is actually pistis, which literally translated simply means faith. It just means faith in general, faith. So faith is an indication that the Holy Spirit is working on a person, that the Holy Spirit has done some work of ministering to the person who has legitimate faith in Christ, who agrees, who confesses what the, the, the disciples, the apostles confessed, what Scripture confesses about Christ. We must also remember that to confess means to say the same word that God says. The, the word that gets translated confess is actually two Greek words. It means same word. So to confess that Jesus is Lord is not so much about what comes from our lips, but about the type of joyful surrender to God that comes from the hearts of his people when they have been born of God. And so when a person, by faith, joins in the confession agreeing with what the disciples said, agreeing with what Scripture says, that Jesus is the Son of God. It's evidence of the presence. It's evidence of the ministry, of the work of the Holy Spirit within them. And when we see this, John says, we know. He doesn't say that we can, we can think with a high degree of certainty or we can be pretty sure. He says we know the love that God has for us. The person who sees the work of God 
in their life, who starts to understand the love that God has for us and starts to feel that love, not only toward God, but also toward God's people, can have confident assurance that God indeed abides in them as they continue to increase in the love that they feel, that they experience, that they walk in toward God and toward his people and toward people in general. So putting it all together, we know that we abide in God and that he abides in us because number one, he gives the gift of the Holy Spirit to all of his children at the moment that they are born of God, the moment they are regenerated, born again. Number two, we can know that we abide in God and he abides in us when we confess the deity of Christ, that God, that, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, agreeing with what God's word says, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. And number three, we can Know that we abide in him and he abides in us when we know of, when we believe, and when we continue, when we persist to abide in God's love and his love abides in us. This is all such amazing assurance and this is all such great news for those of us who can gain assurance from these things that John is telling us. Jesus came to die for sinners, and by his sovereign grace, God the Father has drawn us to his Son, that we may believe in him, that we may be saved by him, through him, and that we may have eternal life in Christ. Amazing. Amazing. But we also have to remember the sentiment that gets expressed in the words of people like Carl F.H. Henry, who said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. We share this world with a lot of people. We share this world with over 7 billion people. How many of those people do you suppose have never even heard the gospel? How many of them have never heard of the love of God as it was demonstrated on the cross as the Savior took the sins of everyone who would trust in him for their salvation? He took those sins upon himself and bore the wrath of God against those sins. He bore the wrath and the shame that his people deserved, simultaneously imputing his perfect righteousness to them. How many people out of seven billion, do you suppose don't know how completely forgiven they can be in Christ? Recent estimations from last year put the number somewhere in the ballpark of there being three billion people who are unreached on our planet. Three billion people who have never even heard the gospel. Nobody has even gone to them and tried to share the gospel with them. Three billion people. Let me drive this home and make that real for you. In 1960, that would have been the entire planet. The entire planet unreached. These are people who haven't had a chance to hear the greatest news that there has ever been 
As Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, here's the application, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And who knows, you know, if, if you actually, if you did that, if you prayed for God to, to send people to these three billion people who have never heard of Jesus, who have never heard the gospel message, maybe if you start praying for that, maybe God will do something really wild and crazy and he'll send you. He'll send you to plant seeds that some may be born again, abide in God, have God abide in them, and come to fully know and believe and walk in the love of God. Let's continue. Verses 17 and 18. hate to just leave that hanging, but I want that to, to stick. I want that to stick. I want it to, to be something that you can kind of meditate on and think about and pray about. Missions are very important. We are a mission-focused church. We support missionaries. We, I've talked with Zach and Jovi about maybe sending missionaries over to the Philippines from our youth or, other, or someplace else. Missions is important, and this is why. Verses 17 and 18. John says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no, lo- no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So there are those words again, by this. <laughs> by this. By this what? By knowing and believing God's love for us, by believing and knowing that he abides in us and that we abide in him because there's no other natural explanation for the changes that have been made within you. By this is love perfected in us. It's grown over time. It's developed. It's strengthened. It's perfected, brought to maturity within us. And it's very important. It's very important that his love is perfected in us. See, it's, it's great to, um, to study and to gain a, and develop a, a deeper understanding of theological truths, of, of doctrine. That's, that's awesome. I, I love doctrine. Uh, obviously, I preach it every week. Uh, it's great to, to learn about doctrine and to understand doctrine and things that are more intellectual in nature. But it's perhaps even more amazing when our love for God and when our love for others continues to grow stronger and more steadfast. See, God is working on, on both our, our hearts and our, and our minds. He's holistic. He's, he's interested in changing all of us. Our very core, our very essence, our heart, our minds, they are constantly under construction by God. Kind of like Seattle, how it's always under construction. We are always under construction, hearts and minds. And it's very important that our love is grown and perfected because it's the means by which we walk in assurance today. And John is telling us that it's the means by which one day 
we will stand confidently on the day of judgment. The day of judgment. The same day that Paul was talking about when he wrote 2 Corinthians 5.10. He said, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Man, our culture hates judgment. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That should be sobering. That should wake you up a little bit. This day of judgment is something to which every wise person who has ever walked the face of the earth has devoted a tremendous amount of thought and consideration. Don't live your life without thinking about what you're going to say or do when you stand before the judgment seat someday. It's worth thinking about. How is it that we can think about that day and have confidence and have a sense of boldness within us? It's because the Father treats His people his children, the same way that he treats his son, Christ Jesus. As his people, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ when we stand before him. And so we don't have to fear. We can be assured. We can be bold because we know that every sin, every blemish has been removed as far from us as the east is from the west. And this is the day, this day of judgment That's the day that John referred to in the previous chapter when he wrote, we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. As our love is perfected, as our love is grown, the reality of our salvation will be demonstrated. The reality of God's work in us will be demonstrated. It'll be evident and that assures us that we stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We stand firmly in Christ, and thus we have no need to have a sense of fear of impending judgment because God's perfect love casts out fear. Fear and confidence are incompatible. Fear and assurance are incompatible. Fear and perfect love are incompatible. If you know and believe the love of God, and if it has been reflected in your life and it's growing, and if you long to be obedient to the will of God as Christ was obedient to the will of the Father, there's a promise that God makes to you. This is one of my life verses. I I love this verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we can not only be ready when we stand before him, we should be ready, but we can also be confident, confidently ready. When God's love has been perfected in us, when it has matured, fear of judgment, fear of condemnation is gone. When we love others as God has loved us, the threat of condemnation will vanish. Here's the thing. How? It's so simple. Let's look at what John writes next. Verse 19. We love 
because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. If you love God, if you love his people the way that he does, it's because God first loved you. Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the most beautiful and profound and eloquent passages in all of Scripture and the way that it tells us all that God has done on behalf of us. Starting with verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Passive tense. We're not doing anything. We're, we're not uh, you know, feeding the poor or doing anything, in, doing works. In order to receive this, we do it because we've received it. This is all passive. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love. Key words. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So how did he do it? In love. In Christ, in love. By whose will? By God's will. That's what it says. According to the purpose of his will. From the foundation of the world. Here's something that should just knock your socks off. From before the foundation of the world. That is, before he created the sun, before he created the moon, before he created the earth, before he created anything in the universe, he set his love on us. That is amazing. Before anything but God, but the Trinitarian God existed, he set his love on us. Yes, God is all-loving, but there is a special sacred covenant love that God has for his people in accordance with the purpose of his will. And that's what John is talking about here. And this is why we even understand what it means to love in the biblical sense. We love why? Because he loved us first. Now, some would say that God loves us because he knew that we would love him. And I have to confess that once upon a time, that was exactly what I would have said. That was was my position for years. And so if you think that that's how it works, you know, that's fine. Uh, I I probably have a, a pretty good idea of how you arrived at your position. And this is an area where there is certainly so much room for different interpretations, different opinions. We've talked about this in the weeks that have led up to this, that there, there are certain things that we cannot disagree about, the essentials of Christianity, and then there are things that we can disagree about, and this is one of them. There's room for disagreement here among Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians. But I couldn't reconcile this position that God loves me, that he elected me, because I loved him first with verses like this one. Because John doesn't say that God loves us because he looked down the corridor of time and and knew that we would love him. 
That would require that God learn something, that God look outside of himself to learn something, which is a very dangerous idea and seems to me that it brings God's all-knowing nature, his omniscience into serious question because it would necessarily mean that he either isn't all-knowing or that there was a time when he wasn't. And so he had to look to find something out. He had to look to learn something. And it would mean that his love for us is contingent upon something that we do. Namely, that we love him. And that's not how John says it works. That would be the opposite of grace. So I got to the point where I said, you know, what what do I do with this idea that God elected me, that he loves me because he looked through the corridor of time and saw that that I would love him? What do I do with that? Do I, do I throw out human autonomy or do I compromise God's omniscience? And for me, personally, it was a pretty easy decision when I got to that point. John says, God loved us first. And the reason that we love is because he loved us first. He took the initiative. And John says that that is why we love at all. And so if we love, if we love in in the full biblical sense, we can know that it's because God first loved us. This isn't talking about the world's definition of love. This is talking about the biblical definition of first. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And when we know that God has loved us, it drives out fear. The amazing love of God allows us to approach the holy and righteous, all-powerful God of the universe as our Abba Father, as our Daddy. This is the intended goal of God's love being perfected in us, that we draw near to him, that we have this affectionate father and son type of love toward him. But do you see that there's a cause and effect relationship that John is showing us here? He's saying that God's love for us causes us to love as well. Again, biblical agape love. Self-sacrificial, selfless love, not love by the world's definition. And here's how we can partake of this incredible, bold assurance. We test ourselves. How do you know when somebody's ready to get their driver's license? You test them. How do you know when somebody's ready to to graduate from a class or to pass a class? You test them. How do we know when we can have this incredible, bold assurance? We test ourselves. And that's that's exactly where John is going to take us next. He says in verses 20 and 21, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar, for he, does not, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment that we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so John basically says, look, here, here's the test. Imagine that you have someone who says, I love God. A lot of people say, I love God, right? A lot of people who don't go to church, a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus would say, I love God. And yet, this hypothetical person 
hates his brother. What does that tell us about this hypothetical person? And I imagine that this wasn't just a hypothetical person that that John is uh, referring to or describing here. I imagine that this is exactly what the Christians uh, to whom John is writing had seen in their midst when they were infiltrated by these false teachers. These false teachers would say, "I, I love God. And yet they hated other people, other people who were Christians. What does this tell us about them? It tells us that they are a liar. It tells us, no, they don't love God. Why? Because they don't love. If God loved them first, they would love. But they don't love. And Christians love because God first loved us, cause and effect. The argument that John is using here is called a lesser to greater analogy, if you want to use philosophical terms. It's a lesser to greater analogy. In a nutshell, what he's saying is, listen, you can say that you love God, but here's the thing. You you can see your brother but you can't see God. And it's easy to love something that you can see, and it's not so easy to love something that you can't see. So if you can't love your brother in Christ, you certainly don't love God. As one commentator summarizes the argument, quote, if you do not manage to love his creatures, then you cannot love the creator. If you do not have the capacity to love his children, then you cannot love their father, end quote. In other words, if we fail at the easier task, loving somebody that we can see, then it's ridiculous to think that we have or can accomplish the more complicated task, loving the God whom we cannot see. And so this whole concept here, we have to understand this, this whole concept of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, this is not just some flippant recommendation that Jesus made you know, off, the, you know, off his cuff without thinking a lot about it. This isn't just like some kind of suggestion he just threw out there. He doesn't just recommend that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ at our own personal discretion. Man, that would be easy, wouldn't it? Jesus said, John fifteen twelve. he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He didn't say, this is my suggestion, that you love one another as I have loved you. He doesn't say, this is my, my recommendation, or this is my idea. He says, this is my commandment. So in fact, there's, there's no room for negotiation on this. It's not optional. If we truly love God, we will truly love the people whom he sent his son to die for and to redeem. You see, back in verse 19, John didn't say we love God because he first loved us. That's not exactly what he said. He said we love because he first loved us. He didn't say we love God because he first loved us. I'll come back to that. That's important. He didn't say we love one another because he loved us first. He said we love because he first loved us. There is no particular object toward whom this love is specified. 
in this verse. The truth that John wants us to see here is that if we love in the biblical sense, it's because God first loved us and the love that we have should be somewhat aimless. It should characterize us. The love for God and the love for his people cannot be separated or divided. You can't have one without the other. That's what John's saying here. You can't have one but not the other. You have to have both. They go together. As Christians, we should always be especially known for our love for God. But our love for God must reflect toward others the kind of love that God has for us. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said that the second most important commandment was like it, that we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Love for God will lead to love for people, especially God's people, but all people in general. And as we come to understand how incredibly undeserving we are of God's love, it becomes a whole lot easier to love those who might seem to be the least deserving of our love. In Luke seven forty-seven, Jesus said that those who have been forgiven abundantly will love abundantly. And I don't know about you, but man, when I, when I look at my life, I know that I have been forgiven abundantly. God has been unfathomably gracious toward me. Do you feel that way? I hope you do. Because he has loved us. God has loved us with a generous and gracious love from before the foundation of the earth. And he desires for us as his people to live our lives for the glory of God alone in the power of that truth. That he loves us. That he has been so gracious to us. John knew that he was loved by God and it was the foundation of his self-perception, his identity. And God wants it to be the foundation for our identities as well. The confident assurance that he loves us should impact every relationship that we have, every interaction that we have with others. And so with the truth and the assurance that he loves us in mind, with that truth firmly settled in our hearts, let us continue to grow in our love for the God we haven't seen yet, but we're going to one day, and to make that love be known by loving others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, and not just loving them, but loving them well. Loving them tangibly, visibly, observably, and generously as God has loved us. Let's pray. Our Father, it is unthinkable for us to imagine 
that you could love us from before the foundation of the earth, before you made the sun, that you set your love on us. And I pray, Lord, that as we think about the truth of that statement, of what you tell us in your word, that it would permeate our hearts, that it would change us. We thank you, Lord, for sending your son in order that we could be reconciled to you. And Lord, we we see and, and we confess, we agree with you and what your word says, that it is the greatest demonstration of love that the universe has ever known. And so in light of that, Lord, teach us to love as you love. Teach us to be compassionate for those who have not heard. And Lord, if it's your will, send us to be the ones to share the message. Your word tells us how will anyone believe if they don't hear? How will anyone hear if somebody doesn't go and proclaim the truth to them? And so Lord, make us willing. Make us a people who are willing because we love. We love you. We love your people. We love your purposes. And we're committed to you. We belong completely to you. Teach us to live our lives in the power of these truths for your glory. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.